Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Kristen Harmel at Scott County Library, R.H. Stafford. Historical fiction phenom Kristen Harmel is the number one international best-selling author behind book club favorites, The Sweetness of Forgetting in 2012, and The Winemaker's Wife in 2019. She reached a still wider audience with the publication of The Book of Lost Names in 2020. Inspired by a true story of World War II heroism, The Book of Lost Names tells the tale of a talented forger who uses her gifts to help Jewish children escape the tightening noose of Nazi oppression. Harmel's latest novel, The Forest of Vanishing Stars, breathes life into another little-known chapter of the war in Europe. During the Holocaust, hundreds of Jewish people escaped from ghettos and banded together in isolated forest settlements to survive both genocide and an unforgiving wilderness. In a rave review, Bookpage says, the best-selling author's research contributes richness and authenticity to this captivating tale. Kristen Harmel is also co-founder of Friends in Fiction, a popular weekly web show and podcast hosted by Harmel and fellow New York Times best-selling writers Mary Kay Andrews, Patty Callahan-Henry, and Christy Woodson-Harvey. So thank you all so much for having me. I am so honored to be here. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, with some prepared remarks, and then I'm going to open it up to questions, which is always my favorite part of these talks. I love answering your questions. Um, I love the conversation we can get into. So please be thinking of anything you'd like to ask me. So the book I'm on the road talking about right now is The Sweetness of Forgetting, which is kind of a kick for me because this book actually came out 10 years ago. This is the 10th anniversary edition, which kind of boggles my mind. And it's, um, it's really cool to see how different things are this time around. When this book was first published in 2012, it was a big hit around the world. It was actually my first bestseller. It, it hit the top of, the, of uh, bestseller lists in Germany, Italy, and lots of other countries. It was such an incredible experience, especially coming off of my first six novels, which were romantic comedies that I think a total of about five people read. So it was quite a different experience. But regardless of how well it did around the world, when it came out here in the United States in 2012, it was kind of like crickets. So this is going to sound crazy, considering how big the World War II genre is now. But at the time, World War II fiction like this really wasn't a thing. Ten years ago, it just hadn't exploded yet. Sure, the book thief had made waves, and writers like Pam Jenoff were beginning to make a mark and shape what would eventually become this genre. But we were still two years away from Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize winning All the Light We Cannot See, 
which was set in World War II France. And we were three years away from Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale, which I think of as the book that took World War II from a niche interest to a wildly popular historical fiction category that we know, you know, that we know today. So that's why I think it is such a wonderfully astounding thing now to have another chance to talk about this book. As the genre has blossomed, this book has amazingly found many readers in the States. Many of them are you guys, so thank you, um, which I'm so happy for. But most of you have found it through reading my other novels, like The Book of Lost Names, The Forest of Vanishing Stars, and then you've been kind enough to go back through my backlist. But I haven't really had a chance to talk about this book on the road here in the States, so it's really, really cool to have the opportunity to do that now. It's kind of a strange feeling to be out on the road promoting a book that I wrote 12 or so years ago, though, because I've grown a lot as a writer and a person since then. So, you know, there are some things I look at in this book now that I think, gosh, I would have written that differently or I would have done that differently now that I've matured as a person and a writer. Um, but I will tell you two reasons why I'm so happy to be getting to talk about this book after 10 years. The first is that I think the history at the heart of the novel is really important. And though it centers around events that happened 80 years ago, they're more relevant than ever now. You see, at the core of this novel is the story of the Grand Mosque of Paris, the Muslim center of Paris, which during World War II secretly helped save more than 1,000 Jewish lives during a time when Jews were being rounded up, arrested, and deported from France. There were Christians and Jews involved in this rescue endeavor too, meaning that 80 years ago, in one of the darkest moments of our modern history, three religious groups who were often at odds were working together to save lives. I think that's a really important thing to recognize and learn from today. But the second and more personal reason why talking about this book means so much to me is that I wrote it while I was losing my own grandmother to Alzheimer's. The novel centers around a Cape Cod bakery owner named Hope, whose grandmother Rose now has dementia and begins to say things that don't mesh with Hope's knowledge of her family history. Finally, in a rare moment of lucidity, Rose sends Hope on a mission to Paris with a cryptic list of names that she says belong to her family members. The story unfolds to the backdrop of Rose's awareness of the present slowly fading away. Though Rose is not exactly based on my grandmother, who was Catholic and spent World War II in Boston, not in France, the relationship between Hope and her grandmother and the pain that Hope feels over losing her so very slowly is very reflective of what I was going through with my own grandmother at the time. My grandma died in 2014, but there's very much a piece of her in this book which is dedicated to her and my grandfather who died in 2009. When I went back a few months ago to read over the pages for the first time in years, I found myself sobbing in places, in spots that had to do with the interaction between the two women. She's all over this book, and for the rest of my career, it'll hold a very special place in my heart because of that. At its core, though, this story is about how, during mankind's darkest hours, goodness shines through. It's a story of tragedy, but also of hope, for it tells a true tale of how people set aside their religious and cultural differences and came together to help their fellow man. That true story at the heart of this novel moved me and inspired me. And I think it was the beginning of me realizing that writing about light in the darkness and goodness in the face of evil meant something. That center of the story, 
ordinary people finding a way to be extraordinary, and people helping each other even when they might have otherwise been at odds, began to become the core of what I do as a writer. And it's what I've been writing about for more than a decade now, since The Sweetness of Forgetting came out. The Sweetness of Forgetting is also a story about food, and specifically, how sometimes the stories we, we share with our children and grandchildren are not spoken aloud. They're passed down in our traditions, like the tradition of baking that Hope and her grandmother Rose share in their family. My grandparents' generation, the generation that lived through World War II as young adults, was often taught to button up their pain and simply move on, which we know now doesn't really work. So for people who suffered greatly during the war, the way they tried to heal was often to bear their burdens silently. But those stories were there for their families in their actions, their family traditions, the things they put on their table, even the way they loved. I'm fascinated by the way trauma filters down through the generations. And in this novel, that's something that we see firsthand. Rose felt that in order to survive, she had to lock all of her pain away and essentially pretend to be someone else. But that stopped her from being able to feel. She had a disconnected relationship with her own daughter, Hope's mother, because of that. And that, in turn, affected the way that Hope's mother raised Hope. Rose hadn't intended to have that impact on her child and grandchild. But when the way we deal with our grief, our grief, our guilt, and our pain is stunted, so too is the way we express love. And that changes everything. There are, by the way, recipes in the novel, and people often ask me where they came from. Well, I have a bit of a secret passion for baking, and I actually wrote all of the recipes myself, except for a couple, which I note in the book, that came from my own grandmother's kitchen, another piece of her in this novel. But the recipes are meant to give you a taste of the kinds of things Hope sells in her family bakery. And as we learn in the book, some of those baked goods come from pieces of her grandmother's past that her grandmother has never spoken about. In other words, her secrets were there all along, baked into the recipes Hope has made every day. In order to familiarize myself with French, Ashkenazi Jewish, and Muslim baking traditions, I had to spend weeks in Paris in my late 20s, wandering around the city and stuffing myself with pastries. Later, as many of you know, I decided to set a book in Champagne, France, and I had to do the same thing, except with really good champagne. <laughs> it is such a rough life, you guys, the sacrifices I make for my art. No, but it's important to note that the Grand Mosque of Paris, which played a big role in sheltering Jews during the war, as I mentioned, actually has its own bakery, which is open to the public. So if you travel to Paris at some point in the future after reading this book, I hope you'll check it out with Rose's and Hope's story in mind. Now, as for where the idea for this story came from, I will tell you this. I had lived in Paris in my early 20s, but I had been really struck while living there by how much Holocaust history had happened in the City of Light. Later, I read the journal of a young French woman named Helene Baer, known as the French Anne Frank because of the way she recorded both her personal thoughts and the war itself in her diary. And I was moved profoundly to realize that she had spent a lot of time in my Paris neighborhood right near the Eiffel Tower. She had walked the streets I had walked. She had visited the places I had visited. We had the same interests, the same love for reading, the same worries about boys. She was essentially me in a different time period. 
And yet she wasn't me, for she was arrested on March 8, 1944, and deported to Auschwitz, where she died a month later, just five days before the camp was liberated. Knowing her story and feeling so connected to her life, which had taken place in the same spot mine had for a while, made me begin to think of things a bit differently. She was just 24 when she died, the same age I was when I sold my first novel, when my life as an adult was really just beginning. Being able to put that personal, familiar face on such a grand, almost unimaginable scale of loss changed something in me. And even though I began my career writing lighter things, mostly because it was what I thought I was supposed to be writing at that age, the idea of making personal all the terrible things that had taken place during World War II and the stories of hope found in those stories of darkness never really left me. Still, though, I didn't realize I would wind up writing about World War II one day. But then early in my, early in my career, I was working as a magazine writer, and I was assigned a story at People Magazine about a man named Henry Landworth, whose life was an extraordinary one. And I think it set me firmly onto this path I find myself on now. So Henry was born in Belgium in 1927, and he and his twin sister Margot were just 13 when they were arrested and put into concentration camps. Both of his parents were murdered, but he and Margot survived. They were just 18 when the camps they were in were liberated, but they had spent five years, five years of their childhood in concentration camps, and they had lost everything. Henry immigrated to the United States in 1950 with only $20 in his pocket, a fifth grade education, and almost no English language skills. But with grit and determination, after serving in the U.S. Army during the Korean War, he worked his way up the ranks of hotel management and wound up in Cocoa Beach, Florida at the dawn of the space program. His two best friends in life wound up being two great Americans, astronaut John Glenn and journalist Walter Cronkite, both of whom he had befriended when they came to live at the hotel he was managing. And later, the three went into business together and made millions in the hotel industry. In 1986, Henry used a large amount of his fortune to found the organization Give Kids the World, which works to this day with organizations such as Make-A-Wish to bring critically ill children and their families to Orlando's theme parks for memorable, medically safe dream vacations. When Henry died in 2018 at the age of 91, his family wrote in his obituary, even after seeing the worst of humanity, when he came to the United States, Henry chose to let go of the pain and anger, forgive the past, and live a life of peace, compassion, and unconditional love. Henry believed in angels, miracles, and, and had a legendary sense of humor, and he lived every day as if it was a gift from God. When I had spoken with him a decade and a half earlier for people, he told me, you've got to give of yourself, not money, but the essence of yourself. That is what makes life meaningful. I often think of those words and of the conscious choices Henry made to live a life of light rather than dwelling in the darkness. It's hard to imagine spending five years in a concentration camp and knowing that the Germans had killed your parents, yet emerging somehow with a decision to let go of pain and anger, as his family said, and a determination to be a light for others. But he did just that. 
and the life he lived was a glorious, beautiful one that made such an impact in the lives and futures of others, including mine. Since the publication of The Sweetness of Forgetting, I've continued to write about World War II, which is interesting because when I wrote the book, that was not what I intended. In fact, the book I wrote after Sweetness, which was called The Life Intended, was not about World War II at all. It was about second chances, adoption, and choosing our own happiness, set in the present day. But while I wrote that book, I kept feeling this tug back to the research. There were so many interesting things that I had unearthed while writing The Sweetness of Forgetting. And that research trail ultimately led me to write When We Meet Again, my 2016 novel, which is about German POWs in Florida during World War II. Then I wrote about an Allied escape line in Paris in the Rue on Rue Amélie, the French resistance in Champagne, France in The Winemaker's Wife, document forgers who saved children in World War II Central France in the Book of Lost Names, and Jewish refugees who survived in the forests of Eastern Poland uh, during the war in last year's The Forest of Vanishing Stars. I really like telling stories from the war that are undertold. Things that make you shake your head and say, I have no idea that actually happened. It means a lot to me when I hear from readers that they learned something that changed their understanding of the war. And now I've come full circle, returning to Paris and to a tale that involves mothers, daughters, and stars in The Paris Daughter, which will be out in June. So The Paris Daughter is the story of two mothers, two daughters, an allied bomb that falls where it shouldn't in the suburbs of Paris, two families destroyed, and a storyline that picks up in 1960 New York when a chance encounter brings the two mothers together once again as they hurtle toward a startling conclusion to a mystery that started on a sunny April day in 1943 when a bookstore in the path of an errant bomb was reduced to rubble. It's a story about motherhood, sacrifice, the way that tragedy transforms us, and making impossible choices in the face of war, peril, and paralyzing grief. Incidentally, I was editing the first draft of that book when the war in Ukraine began in February, and I was reminded really jarringly of how timely novels like this are even though they take place 80 years ago. War is still destroying families all these years later. And that's one of the reasons why I think books like this still matter and still resonate. They remind us of the human cost of conflict. It's not just about borders and sovereignty and power. Wars, war touches lives just like yours and mine, often in devastating, irreversible ways. In each of our daily lives, we'll be asked questions that test us and that give us opportunities to bring sparks of light into the world in both big ways and small. I can tell you personally that I don't always make the brave choice. Sometimes my decision is to protect myself and my family rather than to walk into the fire. And that's okay. That's very human. And there were many people during World War II who made that decision to simply tread water until the worst was over. How could I possibly judge that? But those aren't the decisions that transform the world, that make it a better place. The decisions that change everything are the brave ones, the strong ones, the extraordinary ones that spring from the lives of ordinary people. And I hope that through my own writing about that time period, about the inner workings of people who made those difficult choices, I'm learning to be braver, stronger, and more extraordinary in my own life. I hope you find some inspiration and some fuel for your own strength 
in books like these too. After all, I think that's one of the reasons we read, that we join book clubs, that we come to talks like this. Books help us to grow. By walking for a little while in the shoes of a character from a different background, a different time period, a different world, we get a bit of perspective on our own lives. Studies show that readers are more empathetic and open-minded, and that's a beautiful thing. Books make us stronger and wiser, too. At the risk of sounding like reading rainbow, which would not necessarily be a bad thing, the more we read, the more we grow. So I'll leave you today, before I take the questions, with the two most memorable things a man named Aaron Bielski said to me while I was researching my last novel, The Forest of Vanishing Stars. So The Forest of Vanishing Stars is based on the real-life survival story of Polish Jewish refugees like Aaron and his older brothers Tuvia, Azael, and Zeus, who ultimately led a group of more than 1,200 men, women, and children who survived World War II by living deep in a dark Polish forest and by fighting back. Aaron, who's 95 now, was just 14 when his parents were murdered, along with 4,000 other Jews in their area, and he was forced into the woods to save his own life. As the group he founded with his brothers grew, it became his job to sneak into the Jewish ghettos around the forest and convince people that if they didn't follow him out, they would die. Every single time he snuck under walls and barbed wire fences, every time he helped dig an escape tunnel by his own hand, Aaron, who was just a teenager, took his own life into his hands. His survival was extraordinary, but so too were the choices he made. Again and again and again, this ordinary boy from an ordinary family of farmers chose to do the brave thing, and in doing so, he helped save hundreds of lives. That group of 1,200 refugees today has more than 25,000 descendants. That's 25,000 people who would not be here today if a small handful of ordinary citizens, including Aaron and his brothers, hadn't stood up to do this brave, incredible thing. I asked him when we first spoke in the summer of 2020 how that time period changed him. He smiled at me and said simply, hardship teaches a person life. I think that's a good lesson from World War II and one that we should remember each time we're going through something difficult. We are shaped by the tough times, not the easy ones. Our lives are changed by walking the hard roads. That's true for all of us and it's something to remember as we face challenges in our lives in the coming months and years. I also asked Aaron Bielski what lesson he had learned from his years in the forest, during which every day was a struggle for survival. I'm not sure what I expected his answer to be, perhaps something about God or family or resilience. Instead, he smiled and said simply, be nice, if at all possible. And really, that's what being a light in the darkness is all about. That's what finding the extraordinary in the ordinary life is about. That's what being better versions of ourselves is about. And it's at the heart of creating a better world. Be nice, if at all possible. It is perhaps the simplest piece of advice you'll hear today. But sometimes, the simple things are the ones that mean the most. I wish all of you lives filled with light and the courage to be nice, if at all possible. For it is truly that kindness that lights the world.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Kristen Harmel and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Harmel has any more stops in the Midwest. Uh, this is my only stop in the Midwest right now. Um, so again, I need to come back and do a whole sweep of the Midwest, don't I? I am so grateful I'm here. It's, um, you know, I live in Orlando and we just went through, um, certainly not as badly as Southwest Florida, but Hurricane Ian was still a category one when it hit us. And it sat and dumped about a foot and a half of rain. We had a lot of damage, our cable's still out, our internet's still out, very like minimal compared to what happened on the Southwest coast. Um, but it, is ni it was nice to, to get away from kind of the stress of, be like everything's taken care of, but it's a little stressful there. So it's very nice to be here and be welcomed into your community and see your beautiful fall leaves, which we don't really get in Orlando. Um, so thank you for having me. And thank you so much for so many of you um, coming out tonight. This is wonderful. You know, as an author, um, there's just always this concern when you go to a place you've never been before. Like, what if I walk in and there's nobody there? So the relief I feel seeing all of you and the gratitude is just immense. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I actually did text the other Friends in Fiction ladies and say, we all have to go here together. So <laughs> already taken care of. This audience member asked if Harmel is working on another book. Yes, but I try not to work too heavily more than a book ahead. Because the thing that happens is, okay, so when you're writing a novel, you're excited at the beginning because you're just getting into it, you're getting to know the characters. And then at about, I would say like the 30 or 40% mark, you start thinking, I, and I always outline, so I always know where I'm going. I have a very good sense of where the book is gonna end up. But it happens with every single book and every author I talk to says the same thing. You get into the middle of the book and you start thinking to yourself, this book is terrible. No one's going to read this book. The jig is up. No one's going to, like, how did anyone ever believe I could write a novel? Um, and so that is the time when it's most dangerous to be thinking about the next book because you begin to convince yourself this book is terrible. I should just go on to the next idea. That has happened to me with every single book. It does not necessarily mean the book is terrible. Sometimes maybe it does, but um, it, for the most part, I think it just means you have to muddle through and not be uh, distracted by the shiny object kind of dancing off in the distance saying, come to me. Um, so uh, yes, I. so right now I, I'm completely finished with The Paris Daughter, which, com which comes out in June. And I do know what the next book is going to be about, but I don't know what the book after that is going to be about. And I'm not going to think about it too heavily until I get to that point, because I can't be distracted from this next one. <laughs> this question is about Kristen Harmel's research process. Does she conduct a lot of interviews to guide her writing? I have, and you know, honestly, that is one of the greatest gifts of being in this position. Because, you know, I, I, it's not just something I write about, it's something I feel really passionate about and interested in. So to have those opportunities, it, you know, and it's one of those things I really enjoyed about being a journalist too. So I always knew I wanted to write novels, but I started my career as a journalist. And one of the extraordinary things about being a journalist is you can sit down with people and like strangers and pick their brains because that's what you're supposed to do. You can ask questions you would never ask a stranger. Um, and I like that about this research too, but you, you asked how, um, how I find the sources. Um, it varies from book to book. Some books are more heavily based in just um, uh, things I've read, uh, things I've, I've been able to find in research, um, videos I've been able to watch, interviews with survivors I've been able to see. 
And I think more and more as we move into the future, those are the kind of things I'm going to have to rely on because I think we're losing the very last generation of people who were old enough during the war to remember you know, what was happening. Um, so, um, so we're moving in that direction, which is really sad. Um, but, but as far as talking to firsthand sources, it has happened all different ways. Um, and I will tell you that the longer I've been doing this, I mean, the fact that I've been writing about World War II for about 12 years now has opened a lot of doors because not only am I able to call organizations I've worked with before, and that I, you know, I, they're organizations that now I've developed relationships with them. So it's easier to call and say, this is what I'm looking for. Do you have anyone who I might be able to talk to? Um, like that's how I found Aaron Bielski. I, um, I called the Holocaust uh, Education and Memorial uh, Center of Florida, which is in Maitland, which is kind of near Orlando. And I said, you know, I've, um, this is someone I'm looking to get in touch with. I've read that he lives in Florida, which I did not know when I started researching the Forest of Vanishing Stars. That was quite a coincidence. Um, and I said, do you know anybody at, um, in that area that might know him? And she was like, oh, yeah, he's come to speak with us before. Let me see if I can get you in touch. And so, you know, people in that world are just really happy to help because I think it's all about sharing the stories. But other stories come to me, um, which is so cool, too. So um, the Book of Lost Names is about uh, document forgers during World War II, but it's also about hidden children, so children who have had their identities changed uh, and who flee with those uh, changed identities. I had someone email me while I was writing The Paris Daughter to say, I just finished reading the Book of Lost Names. I was a hidden child in France. Um, how did you know all these things? You got it, you, you, like you basically told a story that felt very familiar to me, like you, this felt right. And so um, I set up a time to talk with him and we got on the phone and I was in the middle of writing scenes in The Paris Daughter about um, how it felt to be bombed, how it felt to be bombed during the war, to be civilians and have that air raid siren go off and you had to dash, you had to grab your, um, your gas mask and dash to the cellar and hope for the best. Um, and it just happened that he mentioned during the conversation, oh yeah, we, had, we were always in the middle of bombing raids and you had to grab your gas mask and run to the cellar. And I was like, really, can we talk about that? I mean, so there are these wonderful things that happen that kind of line up um, perfectly. And I think the more immersed I get, in the research, the more it all kind of feeds, feeds itself. This audience member asks if Harmel ever struggles with deciding from which point of view to tell a story. So the book that comes out today, the 10th anniversary of The Sweetness of Forgetting, um, it's told from two viewpoints. One is uh, Hope, the granddaughter, and one is Rose, the grandmother. Rose has dementia. Rose has Alzheimer's. And when I wrote the first draft of the book, I wrote the Rose chapters in first person from Rose's viewpoint. And my editor was, or my agent who I showed it to was like, this does not work at all. Like, it, it, I, I, I mean, I was trying too hard to climb inside the brain of somebody with dementia, but then the writing was repetitive and circular. And even though it might've been sort of true to somebody with dementia, it was not a pleasant reading experience. You know what I mean? So, um, so that was probably my biggest false start. Um, this was really a transitional book for me. My first six novels were chiclet. They were romantic comedies. Um, you know, I started writing my first book I sold in 2004. It came out in 2006. And it was during the time that Chiclet was at its height. You know, The Devil Wears Prada, um, The Nanny Diary, Sex in the City, all that kind of stuff. And most of those books were first person. So I started off writing first person, trying to be funny. I'm not very funny. Um, in fact, I remember when I turned in my first draft of my first novel, 
to my literary agent. She was like, this is great, but it needs to be funnier. And I was like, I don't know how to be funny. And she said, just start drinking. And I was like, <laughs> so I, t <laughs> she really did. And I was like, oh, okay, I can try that. And so I drank a bunch and it did not make me funny. <laughs> so <laughs> just a, a little writing tip from me to all of you. Um, but, um, what was I even talking about? I guess I tracked with that. Uh, so, so I was used to writing these first person, like very interior thoughts. And so the sweetness of forgetting was very much um, a shifting of gears because I did have to write that third person viewpoint. Um, and I think I have found my way to doing that now. Third person is very comfortable for me. And I think it's, to me, just a better, more well-rounded way to tell a story. But, um, but I'm writing an Amazon short story now for one of those Amazon short story collections. And I decided to try first person again because I, I hadn't done it in so long. So um, yeah, it, I, I, think, I think you just get the feel of it once you get into writing the character. And, and you'll, I think you just know whether it's flowing the right way and telling the story the right way. Our next question is how Harmel establishes trust with her sources when researching and writing her books. I think it's just that I genuinely come to the table as a human being first and, and a writer second. Um, you know, I'm not trying to pull a story out of them. I'm saying I want to know your story so that I can do honor to what you went through and what other people went through and so that I can share this sort of with, for the greater good um, in a way that reaches a lot of people. Um, I, I think it was harder for me earlier in my career. I think it helped that I had a background at, at People Magazine. I think that gave me a little bit of credibility going in when I began writing books. But still, it, it was harder before I was, I was more established and known because it was kind of hard to say, I'm going to write a fictionalized version of a story that is similar to yours, so will you tell me all your innermost thoughts and fears, right? Um, but I, but I feel like I had to learn that as a journalist, too. Um, I was a really weird kid who knew, like, I, I knew early I wanted to write. I, I knew always I wanted to write books, other than a brief um, period of time when I was convinced I was going to be a pop star named Mystica. Uh, it could still happen. Watch out, world. But, um, but, uh, but aside from that brief Mystica blip in my record, I, I pretty much always wanted to be a, um, a, a novelist. But I started off as a journalist because I, I thought, you know, I can't write books right away. I don't have the maturity to do that yet. Um, you know, in retrospect, I wish I maybe had tried a little bit earlier. But I decided to go into journalism first. And when I decided to go into journalism, um, I was 16. And I was like, well, might as well start now, which I, what a weirdo I was. But um, I was 16 and I started writing query letters to magazines, pitching them stories while cleverly omitting my age. And I got my first magazine assignments at 16 to go interview Major League Baseball players and NHL uh, hockey players uh, because I thought I was going to be a sports writer. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. So um, at 16, I had to figure out how to go and talk to people who I was completely intimidated by um, while, while looking like a 12-year-old. Because when I was 16, I looked 12. I lived in constant fear of receiving a children's menu on a date um, because I looked so young. But luckily, no one ever really asked me out on dates, so it was a non-issue. <laughs> but um, no, um, but uh, yeah, so, so I really had to kind of figure that out early. I had to figure out how to talk to people and how to relate to people. And I think that um, one of the things I've found that has served me well all these years later also is that 
is that if you're genuine about it, if you're coming from a genuine place, and if you allow yourself to feel what the person is saying, um, people, people tend to open up. If they agree to sit down with you in the first place, there's usually a little bit of a willingness to talk. And then I think you just have to make yourself a receptive listener. Um, Sometimes I think I get too involved. I, I have burst into tears during interviews before, which I think you're not supposed to do. Um, in fact, I, w I was working on a, people, a story for People Magazine one time about Terry Schiavo. Do you remember her? She was that woman who um, was hooked up to life support, and there was a battle between the parents and the husband about whether to remove her from life support. And when they announced the decision, um, I burst into tears I, like on live television. Um, I was standing there and I, my editor called and she was like, you can't cry on TV. Like, that's not, like, you're not, you're supposed to be impartial. But, um, I, but I think that's, in a way, as an author, maybe that's an asset because y to feel the story, you absorb the story. And, and I think it just leads to more back and forth. And I also try to read everything I can about the person before I go and talk to them, everything I can find, so that I'm not walking in blind and that there are a lot of different places to pick up the conversation. Um, if it if it if we seem to be kind of not going in the wrong direction, but going in a direction that feels like it's hurting them or that feels like it isn't serving them well, like I, I usually have enough to redirect. But you also asked um, what I do if the person kind of takes it in a different direction than I had intended. Um, I actually like that because sometimes I go in thinking this is this is for sure what I want to talk about. This is what I think we're going to talk about. Um, and I go in and discover that the real story is something different. Like the, like the example I just gave with the, the man who, um, who called me and wanted to talk about the Book of Lost Names, and just in conversation it came out that he had been bombed as a child. So you just kind of never know where those conversations are going to lead. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring if there are any talks about adapting Harmel's work onto the big screen. Hollywood, man, I'm, I'm telling you, um, <laughs> yes. Several of my books have been optioned. A few of them are at different points along the way. Um, I, I don't know. Th there are challenges. Um, one of the challenges is that World War II movies uh, with, that, are folk, that are more female-focused um, are less appealing to Hollywood because they're very expensive to make. And I think that the general wisdom in Hollywood is that if you want to make a lot of money back, the movies have to appeal predominantly to men. I don't understand why. I feel like we go to the movies too. But, um, but that is a stumbling block I have run across. Um, it's expensive to make movies set in two time periods. And most of my books are set in two time periods. Um, it is a challenge to write books that have a dual time, or to make a movie that has a dual timeline because it's unclear who the star of the movie is. So it's, a, it's hard to attract bigger stars to scripts like that. So there are a lot of little things that I wouldn't have known at the beginning of the journey. Um, but there are a few things in motion. And um, one of the things that might come to fruition is The Life Intended, which is my only non-World War II book of the last 10 years. That is probably furthest along the path, but potentially the book of lost names, we'll see. But then how random is this? I have a, a film manager now who came to me because he tried to option the Book of Lost Names. And I had already optioned it to somebody else. But he was like, you know, I feel like you, like you just write like a screenwriter. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I've taken a few screenwriting classes. I don't know. And he's like, no, I, I really think you're going to write TV shows. I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to write TV shows. He's like, you're going to write TV shows. Um, <laughs> I have been pitching a medical drama in the last few weeks 
to several networks. Like, who ever thought, like, who am I? What is this? What is happening here? So who knows? Maybe I'll make a medical drama before somebody makes one of these movies. Thank you for asking. <laughs>